Good evening. Raise your hand if you're now sunburnt. A lot of you are much more red than when I first met you. It's kind of it's kind of interesting to see everyone. I'd be curious to see what you look like on the last day of camp or maybe the next few days after that. Uh, I do want to say before I get going that I am encouraged and grateful to be here. Uh, I am encouraged by uh, so just some of the nice gestures I've seen today. Uh, we did our best to play, as a sports guy noted, uh, competitive volleyball, and the people were so nice. I felt like disinclined to even like swing hard, because they're just such nice people on the other side, and everybody was so kind and caring, and then uh, later we went to the jiu-jitsu thing, and it, I've just never seen people get slammed to the mat and then smile, <laughs> as though they were saying thank you over and over. Thank you for smashing my face on the mat. Thank you for putting your hand and crushing me that way. Thank you very much. Very uh, kind group. Uh, really sweet too. Uh, at one point, I was probably looking a little bit overwhelmed and a teenager offered uh, to watch my son who is, I think, the official camp terror. Like our two-year-old is going to take the camp down. <laughs> He's a little, all right. He's a little, just a little bulldozer. Anyway, it's a very kind gesture that somebody offered to help out and I see lots of little gestures like that around and it, it suggests for me that you really do think of each other as you ought, as family. And that's the theme of our subject this evening, uh, is going to be on the theme of family. So I'd like you, if you would, to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 1. You have to admit, that's, that's like rain, isn't it? It's just little crisp little drops just kind of falling. Look, the elect are already standing. <clears throat> when the roll is called up yonder, when the roll... I appreciate you turning the lights on real bright for me. I mentioned earlier I was struggling with my sight a little bit, and so I, I, I'm grateful. All right, so we're going to look at the story of Jesus, the story of the family of God, and I'll read from the end of Genesis 11, beginning at verse 27, and we'll turn from there to Matthew chapter 1. Now remember, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will endure forever. We hear it so that we might also heed it together. The word of the Lord. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iksah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. All right, I expect everybody to have memorized that. Now turn to Matthew chapter 1. <clears throat> All right, here we go. 
the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nishan, and Nishan the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Ruth, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations, thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Our Lord, we pray that you give us grace to understand not just these hard names, but why they're in the Bible. And as we look at the portrait of the family of God, help us, O Lord, to see ourselves as a part of that beautiful yet imperfect family and to more and more love the people of God. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Please be seated. So at our church in St. Augustine, Florida, uh, I am preaching through the book of Exodus, and probably like a lot of your churches, uh, I go through um, whole books of the Bible, and so we're in Exodus 29 right now, and I've been looking at uh, some uh, really amazing things, but each week uh, I read the text, a lot of times, like right now, uh, we're in a description of the clothes that the priests wear and the sacrifices for their consecration, and I'll get done reading, and I just kind of have that feeling. People are wondering, what is he thinking? What is he going to do with that? How did he get a sermon out of that? Uh, how did he even pronounce all those names? Sometimes I feel like I need to like, take a five-minute nap or something, a little power nap, uh, just after uh, reading uh, names like that. Kids, for fun, a little bit later, try to read Matthew 1, 1 through 18 to one another and see how many of those names you can actually pronounce correctly. It's kind of tricky to do it. Sometimes the hardest part about preaching is just reading all these Hebrew names the right way, which I'm not even sure I read them all. Uh, the right way. I want to talk about family tonight. Uh, it's good that this is the first full day that we have of camp to kind of stop and uh, talk about this theme. Uh, some of us I know uh, come from really good, healthy, functional, beautiful families. Uh, some of us, uh, like myself, come from really broken families but are now trying their best uh, to raise a solid and uh, whole family. And uh, for some, the subject of family is joyful and others, the subject of family is painful. And what I'd like to say is that's actually the way it is in the Bible. This little uh, piece of the Bible here, this genealogy that we're going to look at particularly in Matthew 1, is as beautiful as it is broken. And as we get started, <coughs> excuse me, 
I'm allergic to losing, and I lost a volleyball game today, and ever since then I, I feel troubled, and I've got an a, a involuntary twitch forming. Um, anyhow, I'll, I'll be okay with help. So I'd like you to think about your grandma's house. Now, many of you, though not all of you, probably have somewhere in your grandmother's house a hallway, and down that hallway there is a lineup of pictures and uh, my wife's family had one of these. My family didn't. My family, you probably wouldn't want these pictures to be recorded. But in my wife's family, they're a lot, you know, <clears throat> normal. Uh, they had that, that collage of pictures. And you know the ones I'm talking about. <clears throat> where all the pictures, sorry about that. Where all the pictures are pictures of people in the family. And the first ones that you see are usually the older people in the family. And then as you kind of walk down the hallway a little bit, you get more and more of the family tree, and then you finally get maybe even your own grandma and grandpa, and there's your parents, and you know, there's your dad with an afro, and who knows, they even had those back in the day. I've seen pictures of some of you. And then <clears throat> you get down there, and there's little old bouncing baby you, right? And so you begin, sometimes these pictures, they go way back, like to the days when camera you know, quality was not that good, and they're black and white, and they look like something out of an antique store or an old cowboy movie and they're wearing these funky looking clothes and then you come a little bit down further the trail and you get into the 80s and once again they're really they're, they're wearing funky looking clothes and you know we're not going to talk about the 90s and then you come on down and you know and there again there you are at the end of this trail and even if there's not a frame for you although there probably is there's this real clear sense that this is where you belong this is who you are. These people, the good, the bad, and the ugly, uh, they tell the story of who you are. They tell the story of your identity. They tell the story of how you got here. They tell the story of struggles that your grandparents might have gone through immigrating from one country, maybe even during a world war, and coming over here and taking up farming in some place where they knew hardly anybody, maybe didn't even speak the language. And they, and they worked real hard so that you could have a life and one day even iPads. What were they thinking, right? And so you, you have this sense of, of identity. These pictures tell you the story of who you are. Well, in Matthew chapter 1, you have a very similar thing. In the Bible, genealogies are like the Bible's version of that family collage of pictures. They, they show you not only where you came from and who your great-grandma and grandpa and all of them were, but it, it tells both the beautiful and the broken story of the people of God. Now, I have to admit, um, <clears throat> I love uh, actually teaching and preaching on the genealogies. Does that prove that I'm just a weirdo or what? Like, who loves the genealogies? Who, who, who here has memorized a single verse from a genealogy, right? Or who wants to take a course on the Bible's genealogies? Well, almost nobody. Uh, for some reason, you know, we, we treat the genealogies kind of like vegetables at dinner, like what you have to get through so you can get to what you really want, dessert. Which, by the way, uh, I love vegetables. In fact, if you were to ask my son what his favorite pizza is, you know what he'd say? Go ahead, say it. Eggplant and spinach. He's a mythical creature, isn't he? But genealogies are not something in the Bible that you just kind of have to put up with to get back to the stories 
or the good stuff, whatever that might be, uh, hopefully when I get done tonight, you might actually say, you know what, that, that was pretty cool. There's something going on in those genealogies uh, that's worthwhile. Genealogies do a few things. Uh, genealogies were part of the way the people going all the way back in the Old Testament connected the dots between what God had promised over here and what comes to pass over here. Genealogies basically make the point that God promised and God delivered. That God spoke and God did. It also helps connect the whole books of the Bible together like this. Genealogy tells you that for generations, this is what's been going on, and there are no breaks in the chain, and that's how you can have a real sense of confidence that the Bible really is the Word of God. Uh, One of the things that really encourages me to believe that the Bible is true is actually the genealogies and the things that they communicate uh, in the Bible. But one of the things that the genealogies does that I think is particularly beautiful is it tells us the story of Jesus and his family. So everybody wants to be a part of a beautiful family. People that say they don't are just lying. Everybody wants to be a part of a whole family. It's, it, it was hard growing up without a good family. It's been hard for some of you, maybe, in your own uh, situations. But when you look at this here that we have before us in Matthew chapter 1, uh, it really is a, a gorgeous story. So let's just kind of get into the weeds on it uh, for just a little while. So what's unique about the genealogy in Matthew is that Matthew does a few things that are slightly irregular. Usually in the Bible, when you get genealogies, uh, you have almost exclusively male names. And the reason why is because the family name was carried down the line of men. When my wife and I got married, I ruined, is she here? She is here. Hi, honey. Sorry about that. Uh, So I ruined her perfectly good Scottish name. Her name before I ruined it, was Heather Jean Woodburn. And if you're a Scottish, I mean, that's a home run right there. And then she married this crazy guy with a British-English last name, Watkins. And so now it's Heather Jean Watkins. Uh, it, last names are usually carried down you know, through, through the male line in the Bible. That's just the way that it worked. And so uh, by carrying uh, the, the last name of the men, telling the names of the men, uh, it was an easier way of keeping track of who was born to who, who lived where, uh, where people lived and died, the whole nine yards. And uh, Matthew's genealogy actually contains the name of five women, which I think is really beautiful and significant, and it tells a story. But before we get there, uh, one of the things I want you to, to notice is that this is the story of Jesus. This is the story of how Jesus came into the world. These are the people of Jesus. Uh, this is that hallway, if you will, in Jesus' house that leads to him at the end of the story. And what's remarkable about the story of Jesus' family is how amazingly imperfect it is. Now, if you're perfect, maybe this won't comfort you very much, but it comforts me a ton because I'm a pretty imperfect guy. I'm not pretty, but I'm very imperfect. That's what I meant. You understood that, right? Uh, This is the story of a really imperfect family, a very broken, to use our phrase from earlier, jacked up family, and it's just amazing, almost mind-blowing that these people end up in the lineage of Jesus the Christ. But here's the great great point, I'll give you my little uh, hope line in advance. If, If broken, sinful, bruised people can be in the backstory of Jesus' life, Uh, How about those that will come after him and be in his family now? 
So when you look at these names here, uh, it's kind of interesting to see who gets included. Now, Matthew also tells us something here uh, in the, at the very end of the genealogy. I'm going to look at that, and I'll come back to it. In verse 17, he says, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14, and from the deportation in Babylon to the Christ, 14. So he's using, the, using these big mile marker points to say, okay, from Abraham to David, this is who is who. From David to the deportation, this is who is who. And then from the deportation to the time of Christ, this is who is who. It's a pretty tight package. But there's something really fascinating about those numbers. I'll come back to that at the end. Um, what I want to talk about now really is the five women. Uh, the five women in the story of Jesus tell a beautiful and humbling story. They're probably not the kind of ladies you expect to be in the lineage of Jesus. <clears throat> They're probably not the kind of people uh, that you might even be really excited to talk about. In fact, uh, one of the hard things about those pictures in the hallway is a lot of time uh, there's some pain there, right? Uh, there's that picture of that relative who had a really rough life or maybe died young or died tragically. The point is, a lot of times in that hallway, there's a lot of beauty and a lot of things to smile about, but frankly, there's some things that cut a little bit. And you have this dynamic here. So the first uh, lady who's mentioned in verse 3, I'm just going to focus on these, these five names. I'm not going to try to talk about every one, so don't get excited or nervous. If you would get excited if I talk about every name, I'd like to talk to you and refer you to a counselor. But if you're hoping I'd skip all of them, that'd be a little disappointing as well. So Tamar uh, is the first mention, and, and parents, I'll do my best to be tactful with all the language here. Uh, so Tamar uh, is a name that we learn in Genesis 38. Tamar is the daughter-in-law of Judah. Tamar is married to one of Judah's sons, and this son dies. And what the Bible required is that Judah was to give to her another son who would be for her a husband and a protector. This was the Old Testament uh, way of things. It was what God uh, said it was the way that things should be done. It was a way of providing for Tamar. It was a way of protecting for Tamar. And it was also a way of maintaining that the name of the son who died would be carried on and would not be forgotten. So God put all that in place. And Judah, however, failed to provide that uh, for Tamar. And in time, uh, when uh, sons came along that were supposed to do the right thing, they did the wrong thing. And eventually, Tamar takes matters into her own hands and she tricks her father-in-law and ends up getting pregnant. There's sin on every side and it's really gross. It's frankly uncomfortable to talk about, right? If you're a parent right now, you're wondering, like, how far is he going to go with this? And you're a little bit nervous. And if your kid thinking about this, you're like, this is really gross. So this guy and his daughter-in-law, that, that's not good, right? Uh, you're supposed to be kind of grossed out by this. And, frankly, you're supposed to be a little bit offended. Uh, because, frankly, Tamar should have been protected, and rather she was neglected. But she also should have done righteously, and instead she succumbed to sin. And Judah, in the end, is found to be the most unrighteous character in the whole story, which he actually says. 
So here, the first name of the first female in the genealogy of Jesus the Christ is Tamar, who tells a rather embarrassing story. This is the one that went to prison or whatever it is. This is that awkward moment in the family tree, and it's right there in verse 3. The second one is Rahab. Now, I always feel like history has done an unkindness to Rahab because her, her name is Rahab. And all she's ever called in the Bible is Rahab. But history has given her a nickname, which is Rahab the prostitute. Okay? Now, she was a woman of the night. But she's never called that full title, is my knowledge. My might correct me. And nevertheless, uh, Rahab we know as being a woman who used her body to make money in sinful ways. And the way she worked was really, really bad. It was sinful. It was wrong in the eyes of God. And yet God, in His mercy, when He came to the land of Jericho that He was going to destroy in whole all of these people, He saved only one family when He got there. And it's the family of Rahab, whom we know as Rahab the prostitute. But it's very interesting now that of the two ladies that are mentioned in the genealogy of Christ, the first is Tamar, and that's awkward, and the second is Rahab, and it's even more awkward. These are tough stories to tell. This, this doesn't usually make it into most children's story Bible books, does it? Perhaps for good reason, but it, it did make it into the Bible. And it is in the story of Jesus. So let's not wash it out too quickly. The third is perhaps a little bit easier. You can all take a breath now. I think we've gotten through the hardest part. Oh, wait a minute. Nope, there's one more. My bad. <clears throat> but for a moment, you can catch your breath, and we'll talk about uh, Ruth. Sweet, wonderful Ruth, right? R Ruth, that wonderful book uh, that's like you know one of two books that are used in Bible studies, ladies' Bible studies, over and over and over and over. Uh, the book of Ruth. It's a beautiful book. I've, I've preached through it. Love the book of Ruth. Weddings often will quote from the book of Ruth, where you go, I will go, your people will be my people. Kind of interesting that that gets used at weddings a lot since that's Ruth speaking to her mother-in-law, but there you have it. <laughs> but it, it is true. I was paying attention to that. So Ruth tells this wonderful story about uh, God's covenant provision, but it actually also is a bit awkward and embarrassing for the people of Israel. Why? Well, because the book of Ruth uh, follows very closely on the heels of the book of Judges when everybody's doing whatever they want. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. The people of God are sinning against God. They're breaking all of His commands. And one of the things that He promised them is that if you sin against me, I will cause the heavens to dry up. In Florida, we get rain all the time. This would, you know, the weather you guys have here in a month would kill our whole state. And He says, I'll cause the heavens to dry up and you will experience famine in your land, and you will end up wandering away from me. So the book of Ruth opens up uh, with this story of there being famine in the land. So much so that this man takes his family, and they go far away from the place that they were to dwell in and be blessed in. And not only do they begin to starve, but one at a time, uh, these three different men actually die. And as they begin dying off, Ruth the Gentile, Ruth the Moabite, emerges in the story as one who basically has more faith than the men of Israel. Who has more faith and more godliness than the people of Israel. 
And so Ruth, as beautiful as her story is, I think a lot of people miss this. Uh, in many respects, the, the point of the book of Ruth was to chide Israel. Ruth, the Gentile Moabite widow, has become more faithful than the people of Israel. And God, in the end, will bless her and give to her a, a family, and from her will come a king. Who is Ruth's grandson? Somebody said it. David. Maybe it's great-grandson. I told you, I can't count. Close enough. All right. I'm sticking with David. He's down there four or five lines. It's soft math. It's postmodern math. Maybe it's great-great-grandson. But anyway, his name's at the end of the book. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. So you have this redemptive feature to the book of Ruth. And at the same time, uh, it, it is a little bit awkward for Israel to read the book of Ruth because she does what they should have been doing and they experience what she should have never deserved. Ultimately, uh, God's blessing falls upon uh, this Gentile daughter of the covenant. And then you come to Bathsheba. I want you to look at Matthew 1, verse 6 here for just a moment. Matthew 1, uh, verse 6 is, again, kind of awkward. Lots of that uh, sort of awkward moments here. Because in Matthew 1, 6, it tells us, That David had a child. But notice the way that it reads. And David was the father of Solomon by... Now read with me here. I'm at the end of verse 6. I'm going to do it again. And David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba? It's not what it says, is it? It says, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. By the wife of another man. Painfully awkward, embarrassing, and yet here you have David, the great king of Israel, uh, who basically has an affair with another man's wife and then kills the man to cover it up, a man who proves to be David's loyal servant, far more loyal to the king than the king is to this man. Uh, so here, that is the fourth female name. And the last one is perhaps, at least in my view, the only one that you can truly say, okay, that was kind of an easy one, and that's Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary, of whom the Bible uh, says nothing negative, which is not to say that she's uh, sinless, not implying that at all. But Mary does not have the baggage that these others do, or the sort of embarrassing, awkward uh, dynamics. But I want you to just pause with, with me for a moment, and at least just think about this fact, that of the five names listed, the four of them are actually kind of difficult stories to tell. Kind of embarrassing stories to tell. If you're walking down uh, the hallway, maybe this is where you want to turn over a number of these pictures and say, yeah, just don't ask about that one. We just, we just don't talk about that one. But the Bible actually talks about it. And it goes out of its way to tell us that the story of Jesus, the family of Jesus, is a very imperfect, broken, and jacked up family. And so that by the time you get to Jesus, you should be just hungering and thirsting for something beautiful to come into the picture and clean up all these pictures. And that happens. That happens in Jesus. All right, I'm going to start putting people in the headlock. Anybody else gets up and walks out? I'm going to have to get off the pew and run them down. I'm just kidding. You sit down. <laughs> I know there's at least one that's going to listen to me. All right. So, <clears throat> no, I mean it. You, you sit right back down. 
You will live 30 more minutes. Maybe. Okay. So what do you do with all this? Where is all this going? What, what's the point of all these stories uh, being listed here in the story of Matthew chapter 1, the story of Jesus? Well, this is it. Uh, the people of God are a very imperfect family. You're a beautiful family, but you're also a very broken family. Uh, the family of God, the church even now, is a broken yet beautiful family. But what makes it beautiful is obviously not what it is all by itself. If you just tell the story of Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba, uh, frankly, you're left feeling a bit uh, awkward and dirty and uncomfortable. So what cleans this up? Well, the whole point is that God is going to bring about the most beautiful family dynamic by doing this. He's going to send His Son into the world, and His Son is going to make this very imperfect, cracked portrait beautiful and whole by Himself. But the way that comes about is perhaps the most remarkable stain in all of history. It's when the family of God, the people of Israel, turn against the Son of God. It completely rocks my world. The people of God turn against the Son of God. Uh, this is the worst version of uh, family feud, family strife, family mutiny that you could ever imagine. The people of God turn against the Son of God. The very Son that God had promised. The very Son that even these people in Matthew 1 and the Old Testament were looking forward to His coming. And when He comes, they kill Him. And the Bible says that God was pleased even to send His Son to come and to deal with our sins. That's the most baffling thing to me in the world. In fact, I like to illustrate it with, with a little story that actually involves this little guy right here. He's not so little uh, anymore. It's one of my favorite stories. It's also one of the most hard for me to tell. So when Carl was little, sorry for talking about you so much, but you'll be okay with it. So when he was little, he was uh, in a specialized children's hospital in, in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, he had an infection and he had an infection that wore an infection as a mask. So basically the way it works is he had a, a, a really nasty infection that was wearing strep on top of that infection. And so it was kind of like wearing the strep as a mask. And so what happens is uh, when you have a real serious, like this could be deadly infection, and you treat that uh, with like a minor antibiotic, it's like feeding it steroids. The, the actual deadly one becomes all the more serious and threatening, and that's basically what happened to him. We sent him to the hospital. Uh, they, they sent him home uh, with this kind of low-grade stuff, you know, penicillin, the, the easy stuff. And then the next day, he had this thing that's just blowing up on his neck. It was clearly a serious issue. Uh, we called and said, this is what's going on. They said, don't even come back. Uh, don't take an ambulance. Drive him straight up to the hospital. He needs to go to a specialist. This is a big deal. And so he spent five days in this specialized hospital and uh, was, was in, you know, it was, it was a very serious thing. To me, uh, it, it seemed deadly serious, and it was uh, in a lot of ways. And I don't know if you've ever been in a children's hospital where there are a lot of broken little bodies. Now, all these little kids up here, this is kind of cool, having you right up here, because you guys are all kind of cute and nice, and some of you need baths. All of you need baths. Some of you really, really need baths. But you're, you're really cute, and you're, and you're pretty lovable, and, and who couldn't love you, right? I mean, you're here because people love you. 
Okay? So in a children's hospital, late at night, they want me to walk Carl to just try to get the infection out of his system. So he's got this little IV thing on, on a pole and on wheels. And so we walk up and down the hallway. And he's, here's a tiny little hand holding me. This is probably, what, five, six years ago? I'm looking at my wife. Whenever I say time things, I have to look at her because I'm usually wrong. If I say five or six, it was six or eight. If I say six or eight, it was actually four or five. But I'm, I told you I'm not good with math. So anyway, Carl and I are walking down these hallways, and you can't help but look inside some of the rooms at some of these other kids that are there. And they were varying ages, some of them little tiny babies that seem to come out of the womb uh, just with a, a horrible uh, situation and, and just tubes wrapped all around their bodies, and you can barely see the baby underneath all the tubes. You ever seen a baby like that? Uh, there were others who were bigger kids, looked like they'd been in a car accident, there's nobody in the room, just this kid, all, you know, bandaged and cast and extension stuff, holding them in place, and no one else there. Did the parents die? Were they in jail? Other kids, broken, uh, seemed to be fighting for their lives and family all around them, like this was the end. Pretty, pretty serious stuff. So, so here, here's the point. Mercy is not my gift, I admit it. Some of you here are very kind and compassionate. If you need like, mercy, please talk to my wife. <laughs> need a straight answer? I'm probably better at that. But looking into the rooms of all these broken little kids, I was overwhelmed to tears with compassion for these broken little kids that look just like you. But then something hit me that I couldn't decide if it was really great or really horrible, but it was certainly the truth. For all the compassion that I had for all those little kids, there was not one kid in one of those rooms for whom I would have given up my son. So before you judge me, just think about it for a moment. There was not one kid broken, bruised, but then something even stronger than that hit me and really just pinned me to the floor. And it's this, and I want to make sure that I've got your attention. Like, this is, this is a big deal. You should think about this at night when you're falling asleep. God didn't send His Son into the world for sweet, innocent, helpless little babies. He sent His Son, His precious, beloved Son, if I might say it this way, His precious, beloved Carl, whom he loved, he sent for enemies. Self-proclaimed enemies and rebels. Not sweet, innocent, harmless little kids. He sent his son into a story with people like Judah and David and Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba and Ruth and Mary, and you. Does that blow your mind? The Father, we always, we rightly esteem Jesus so highly for coming and dying. I, I'll tell you, in the last couple of decades or so, it's become very more impressive, not sorry, last decade or so, it's become very impressive to me to think that the Father gave up His Son. What dad would do that? Does that blow your mind? It's, it's, it's too big a pill to swallow. It's one thing to say, I'd lay down my life for somebody else. It's a wholly different thing to say, 
that I would lay down somebody's life whom I love for somebody who's declared me to be their enemy. But beloved, that's what God has done for you in the gospel. The Father gave up His Son, delivered Him over to His enemies to allow His Son to be tortured and killed so that Tamar's, Rahab's, Ruth's, Bathsheba's, Mary's, insert your name here, become part of the story. How do you become a part of the family of God? It's not by you just deciding one day casually to stroll right in and everything's fine. It's because God did something you couldn't do. In fact, He did something you and I would never do. The Gospel is the most splendid, beautiful mystery ever, ever set to words. And that is the Father's love for you, beloved. Uh, Stroll down this hallway of Matthew 1, and when you come to the end, and you find yourself there by the grace of God, uh, just imagine what it costs the Father, what it costs the Son. Uh, The hymn we sing, Oh, the deep, deep, love of Jesus that he should be willing to come and take your place if you've ever stood beside someone that you love who is really injured really injured the one thing you totally wish you could do is what take their place we have a family in our church who I just respect with I mean just tremendously and they buried a 12 year old son to leukemia Have you ever looked in the eyes of a dad who's lost a son to a nasty disease like that? It takes your breath away. And I can remember talking to him about it. This is a family who just kind of wears their emotion on their sleeve. And them telling me at one point, the dad in particular, is like, you know, the one thing I just wanted over and over and over and over was to take his place. Just let me take his place. But you can't take somebody else's place. Jesus took your place. Kids, He took your place. He took your sickness, your sin, your disease, all that we deserve. And He took that for you so that you could be not only made whole in Him, so you could become a part of the greatest family in the world. So I I want you to look behind you. You on the front row. Turn around and look at all these crazy people. They're looking at you. You know who that is? That's your family. That's the church. These people love you. They drug you up a mountain. They might even bring you back. (laughs) The family of God is a broken and jacked up people. But they're beautiful in Christ. Just two more things I want to talk about. Uh, All three of my children are adopted. Uh, Heaven and I discovered about seven years or so after leaving here uh, that we couldn't have children naturally. And after kind of working through that and... uh, God basically wrestling us to the ground. We surrendered and in time uh, began adopting. And the Lord's just done wonderful, wonderful things. We're actually saving up to adopt one more child, uh, which is to me sobering every time I say it because I'm 46. Most people my age now are starting to have grandkids, and we're still trying to have more kids. So uh, going down swinging. But I want you to think about it. Matthew 1 sets up for us, a beautiful doctrine that we know from our catechism and other places, the idea of adoption. You, beloved, 
have been adopted into a family. You've got family, I'm going to guess, right? You've been brought here by somebody, uh, and you've got family here. But, but really, your earthly family, you know, they're, they're pretty good, they're okay, but your family in Christ is the best family. Family in Christ is the very best family. You know why? Because you're going to spend eternity with your family in Christ, and if you have Christ in common, you have the best things in common. Like one of the reasons why I'm so excited to be here is because my kids get to meet more family. And they'll drive away, we'll come home from this trip, probably absolutely tired, more grumpy than I even want to contemplate right now. I'm not even thinking about the plane ride home. Right? But, but it's worth it to come be with family. There are people here 20 years ago when we were cutting our teeth on the Reformed faith, took us in their homes and loved us. Uh, Sunday, I'm looking forward to seeing this old Dutch couple that our very first Sunday we visited the church here, brought us back for lunch, basically made us stay until it was time to go back to the evening service, and then took us back. We learned later it's really part of a plan. <clears throat> Can't wait to hug them. That's family. And that's your family. These are the people that love you. You've been adopted. Our catechism asks the question, see if kids you can do this for me. Who made you? What else did God make? Why did God make you in all things? Now I'm going to ask you one that maybe you don't know. Do you know that all of you, if you love Jesus, do you know that you've been adopted? That you are actually adopted into his family, the Bible tells us. So I want to ask you a question. Uh, why would God adopt you? That's the answer. My 11-year-old one day looked in my eyes, this great big moon saucer, you know, the one that bounces across the clouds, and right now is probably singing with the angels somewhere. And, all right, she so looked at me and he said, this great question, how would you answer this? Daddy, why did you adopt me? What would you say? Why are you in this story, kids, adults, in this broken but beautiful, jacked up but redeemable family, why are you in this story? Why did the Father in Heaven adopt you? She gave the right answer. Because He loves you. And this is who you are. This is your story in Christ. Uh, when you walk down this little hallway, you see an imperfect family, but you also see where you belong. You belong with the people of God. You belong right here at this camp. You belong at your church on Sunday. You belong under your pastor's preaching. You belong in family devotions at home. You know why? Because you belong to Christ. Look at my eyes. Last thing I'm going to say. You belong to Christ. Stay home. This is the best family in the whole world. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we'll never understand this side of heaven how it could be that you would send your Son into the world to take the place of rebels such as ourselves, of children who you call elsewhere in Scripture by nature children of wrath, bent on our own destruction. And yet because of your everlasting love and the deep, deep love of Jesus, you were pleased to redeem us, to save us, and to adopt us, to take us up into your arms, and to tell us that you will never leave nor forsake us. These are wonderful promises. And Lord, uh, I know that as I talk about family, uh, for some, uh, this is an easy subject to hear, no big deal. 
For others, it's a painful subject to hear because we know our own brokenness. And for some, it's a wonderful message to hear that we are a part of a beautiful family because we long for that in our heart of hearts. I ask, O Lord, particularly for the hearts of our covenant children this evening, that even now you'd cause them to sense the beautiful privilege it is, not simply to have Christian families, but to grow up in the most wonderful church, the most wonderful family in the whole world, which is the church, the body of Christ. And we ask, O Lord, that you would increase our affection for your church, that we would remember that when Jesus looks down from heaven, At everything that he has made, he made the mountains and they are beautiful. He made the ocean. It's quite lovely to see. He made everything in between. But the only thing that he says that he loves is his church. So Lord, help us to love you back, to stay home in the covenant, and to glorify and enjoy you for all of our days. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.